1: taking it to
0: a do-it-yourself level.
2: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. The show is podcasted at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au or whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Laura Perry and I'm joined today in the studio by my co-host, Kay and Michael, good morning. Good morning. morning. Today we'll be speaking with Professor Michael Aziz, who is a Gene and Tracy Skies Professor at the Material and Energy Technologies at the Harvard Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences in Massachusetts, USA. Professor Aziz and his materials science group have developed an organic, metal free flow battery that relies on the electrochemistry of natural, abundant small organic molecules to store electricity generated from renewable intermittent energy sources. We first talked to Michael in late 2014 when the U.S. Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Agency awarded a three-year, 3.75 million U.S. dollar contract to his Harvard team to develop a promising grid-scale battery technology. You can catch up on this podcast on the BZE website podcast page. Professor Michael's team have recently reached another milestone, which we will learn about today. The professor joins us from the USA. Over the phone, welcome Professor Michael Aziz. Good day, Kay, Laura and Michael.
0: (laughs) Good morning. Afternoon, sorry. For you.
2: Before we start these interviews, Michael, uh, we'd like to get an understanding of your journey in the renewable industry. How did you get started in engineering battery storage?
1: Well, I was... Busily doing my work in materials, which is the field of my PhD where I got my training. And around the turn of the century, they asked me to teach thermodynamics, the science of energy generation, energy interconversion, energy efficiency. Now, this is a complicated and dry subject, and it's probably the most feared subject in the typical undergraduate engineering curriculum. And so I felt The need to find a way to motivate my students to make them understand why it's important to learn this stuff. And in looking around, I discovered the energy climate problem. I discovered that we're fueling our civilization by burning fossil fuels that emit CO2 into the air that are disrupting the climate. And I came to the realization that the greatest challenge facing humanity this century is finding enough energy to power a civilization that's going to have 10 billion people in it without destroying the environment. So I tell my students about this. I tell them that anything they can do over their careers to help solve this problem is likely to be highly valued, and that's very motivating to the students. But as I'm standing there in front of the classroom pontificating to my students, I'm also having a conversation with myself. You're a tenured professor at Harvard. There's nowhere up the academic ladder that you wish to climb. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Don't you think you can start taking some risks in your research to see if you can make a real difference with this incredibly huge problem? And so that's what I've done. And this is the first risk that's really paying off, which is why I'm talking to you today.
2: Fantastic. And you're... uh... Your current team at Harvard, how many people does it consist of, and what kind of backgrounds does everyone come from?
1: Well, there's four professors at Harvard involved in this project. I do the engineering of the, the cells, the electrochemical cells. My colleague Roy Gordon is an experimental chemist, and he's in charge of the effort to source molecules or develop molecules. That's the real innovative part of our technology. I have a theoretical chemist colleague, Alan Spudoguzik. He's in charge of an effort to rapidly calculate the properties of molecules. He's calculated the properties of over 100,000 different molecules now, which gives us guidance on what to try to synthesize and use in the lab. And we work with Bill Hogan, who's a professor in the John F. Kennedy School of Government here. He's the world's foremost electricity markets expert. And he is looking into real time electricity prices on all the nodes in the US electric grid in order to figure out how inexpensive a battery needs to be in order to pay for itself on the grid. Each of us has one or two postdoctoral research fellows working with us and one or two PhD students also. So together we have maybe fifteen maybe fifteen people who meet around a table once a week. We also have a small company collaborator. They're a subcontractor on our government contract. The company's called Sustainable Innovations in Glastonbury, Connecticut. They're led by an electrochemical engineer named Trent Moulter. And their job in this project is to build a system that could be commercializable. So no more duct tape and alligator clips like we use in the lab, but to have something at a large enough scale that works well and looks good, so that people would want to it's buy
0: a, it—a production product.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. at least a first of a, uh, a first of a kind product that may may be revised yet further if it goes into mass production. Mm-hmm.
0: Professor, um, we want to get into the details of your batteries, including the um, the original one and then the advances you've made. But before that, we do that. You sent us some beautiful briefing notes that I'd just like you to talk to the our listeners about the fundamental problem with renewables, and then the fundamental problem with batteries, and and how you are addressing that. Just to set the context for the, for the work you're doing, if you wouldn't mind.
1: Sure, and uh, I presume your listeners. Most of them don't know what a flow battery is, so I can explain that in the context of the fundamental problem with batteries. Let's assume that. Yeah. But what we've seen over the past few years is an amazing drop in the price of photovoltaics to the point where photovoltaic electricity in some places is cheaper than any kind of fossil electricity. The problem is what do you do when the sun isn't shining? If you can store that electricity in a battery at very large scale and cheaply and cost effectively so that the cost of the battery doesn't add a whole lot to the cost of the photovoltaic electricity, then you have a winning proposition for using solar energy around the clock. There are two main figures of merit for a battery. One is the amount of energy it can hold. That's measured in kilowatt hours. That's what I pay for on my electric bill. And the other is the rate at which you can deliver that energy out of storage. That's the power in kilowatts. And those two figures of merit come together in different proportions for different applications. The ratio of kilowatt hours to kilowatts is the number of hours that you can discharge your battery at its rated power before it's drained. And for storing solar energy, say from your rooftop, and running your home off of it through the evening and night you want to be able to run your battery for several hours before it's drained. The problem with traditional batteries is you can't do that. The energy-to-power ratio is less than an hour, meaning if you discharge these typical solid electrode batteries, at their rated power, they're drained within an hour. So you can stack up banks and banks of batteries and drain one each hour through the night, but you've just increased the cost of your storage by more than a factor of 10 Hmm. And that makes it just impractical economically. So, I've been working on flow batteries, which have the advantage that they can increase that energy to power ratio and get to very long discharge durations because of the way the battery is built. In a regular battery, the energy capacity, the kilowatt hours, are held bound up in the, the amount of material in the battery that's storing the energy. And the power capacity is the, the electrodes in the battery, the surface area of the electrodes, and they're all rolled together in one jelly roll. Mm-hmm. And so you can't scale them independently. In a flow battery, you store the energy in chemicals, in fluids, in external tanks outside the battery, so you can make them as big as you want. It's a lot like a fuel cell, which is a more familiar technology. In a fuel cell, you have this high-energy chemical fuel, typically hydrogen, in a tank outside the cell. And when you want to convert it to electricity, you flow it into the cell. You flow air into the cell. In the cell, you convert the chemical energy to electrical energy, get the electrical energy out, and you exhaust low-energy chemical products, water vapor. To turn this into a flow battery, you can't just exhaust to the atmosphere. You have to contain the products. So when it's time to recharge the battery, you flow the product back into the battery force electrical energy back into the battery and convert those low energy chemicals back into the high energy chemicals they started with. Now you have a flow battery that works in round trip. So the big advantage of the flow battery is you want a certain power, you build your cell, the surface area of your electrodes in your cell for that size and no bigger. If you want more and more energy, you're talking about just big dumb tanks. As long as the chemicals in the tanks are cheap, then you have a winning proposition.
0: Yeah, I love that example of the, the fuel cell, it, it crystallized something for me. I hadn't thought about that equivalence and the fact that the um, you're using chemical change with a fuel cell, so you're taking the hydrogen in, using the chemical change to get the electricity, but you can't do the reverse. You can't feed electricity back into that and get the hydrogen back, but your battery, you can do that, you're reconstituting the chemicals to be a, a stored energy form.
1: Very, very There quick. are people working on doing exactly that with hydrogen and oxygen, but... Oxygen is a real nightmare, it turns out. The, the inefficiencies are enormous, mm-hmm. and they have stumped a very large number of very smart people. And so our, we set out to avoid using oxygen in the fuel cell for forward and backward energy conversion just for that reason.
0: Yeah, that was another lovely insight. You saw these people doing the hydrocarbons with, um, for the fuel cells and said, well, can we get it going two ways? Your, your first flow battery, um, the technology was published in Nature in 2014 and things have moved very quickly. Can you just give us a brief overview on that first flow battery?
1: Sure. Um, but let me interject something first. I feel, I, I feel like I've, I've missed one step, but flow batteries have been around for a long time. And there are commercial flow batteries now. They run on vanadium, vanadium in acidic solution. And the vanadium flow battery was actually invented by a professor at the University of New South Wales named Maria Skilas Kazakos. And she's famous because this is a terrific battery. The problem with this battery is vanadium is a rare and expensive metal. Mm-hmm. And so there have been lots of efforts to try to do better than vanadium. Or let's say there have been lots of efforts to try to do as well as vanadium technically, but for, with lower cost chemicals. And we've discovered organic chemicals that do that.
0: Yes, yes. So back to your battery of 2.014, the initial organic chemical battery?
1: Yes. In the initial chemical battery, we had been looking at other materials besides vanadium to put in a flow battery that might be cheaper. And I'd noticed that other groups were making progress using organic chemicals in a fuel cell. So I started talking with my colleagues, the chemists, Roy Gordon, Ted Betley, Alana Spurguzik, looking for organics that might work well in two-way operation in a flow battery. We noticed a class of molecules that are in chlorophyll. They're called quinones. And during photosynthesis, they pick up electrons and give them off again, over and over and over, without any sign of degradation. And that's exactly the functionality you want in a battery. So we had to modify them to make them soluble in water. We dissolved them in acid. We put them in the negative side of a flow battery and used an old-fashioned positive side just so we weren't changing too many things at once. And it worked terrifically. So we had the negative molecule called a quinone in acid against bromine in hydrobromic acid on the positive side. And the performance rivals that of vanadium after just a year. So we still have room for improvement in that chemistry. It's actually been licensed for commercial use in Europe to a company called Green Energy Storage, and it looks like it might be really good for industrial and utility scale energy storage. The problem is bromine is a toxic and corrosive chemical, so it's nothing I would want to have in my basement. So for residential and commercial use, this isn't suitable. You need to have trained professionals who know how to handle industrial chemicals. So since that paper in 2014, we've been working on a way to replace bromine because uh, we realized that if we can make something entirely non-toxic, then we can have something suitable for much more widespread use. And that's what we have now. That's the paper we published in September of this year.
0: Okay, so you've, you've um, already come into some of my next question, which are the benefits, and is it more economical? Presumably it is if you're using organic molecules rather than things like vanadium, and it's non-corrosive?
1: So our, our molecules look like they're going to be very inexpensive, about a third of the cost of vanadium per kilowatt hour stored, which is likely to be a huge advantage when these things get commercialised. Let's see. You asked about other benefits. Our new chemistry is an alkaline chemistry even, instead of an acidic chemistry. And the alkaline solution is less corrosive than the acidic solution. It, it enables us to have much less expensive containment parts. We can make a lot of parts out of just cheap plastic and have them hold together and not fall, not fall apart or be attacked by acid. So this, this is a very encouraging sign as well.
2: So moving on to your further developments with the most recent organic flow battery, you said that it's now in an alkaline solution. Um, What other elements have you changed? And when you set out to make these changes, what were you trying to improve?
1: Well, our mission has been to try to make an all-quinone battery with one quinone molecule that works on the negative side and another that works on the positive side turns out that quinones that work on the positive side, it's very hard. We haven't succeeded yet, although we're closing in on it. So in the meantime, we looked for substitutes on the positive side that were less toxic than bromine. A postdoc in my lab named Mike Marshak, who's now an assistant professor of chemistry at the University of Colorado, noticed that there was an old-fashioned positive molecule called ferrocyanide, which had been developed in the 1980s by Lockheed for a zinc battery. But that, that molecule, ferrocyanide, is stable and soluble only in alkaline solution, not acidic solution. So he started looking into ways to make quinones that would be stable and soluble in alkaline solution. He and a PhD student named Kai Shang Lin succeeded and made this quinone that we published in September that has OH groups, hydroxy groups, attached to it, and that makes it soluble in alkaline solution. So we put that on the negative side now in alkaline solution against ferrocyanide in alkaline solution, and we have a battery that works very well. The performance right now is about two thirds as high as the performance in the acid battery, but we have reason to believe we can improve the performance quite substantially.
2: For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show with Professor Michael Aziz from the Materials and Energy Technologies at Harvard, Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Science. We're talking about his latest development in their organic flow battery. Uh, We've just established the newest molecule, which is the ferrocyanide. Can you tell us a little bit more about ferrocyanide, Professor Aziz? It sounds quite toxic with the word cyanide in it. How safe is it, and uh, where does it come from? Is it also an abundant molecule? Sure. So
1: it does have the scary word cyanide in it, and it does have cyanide groups. Those are carbon-nitrogen pairs in the molecule. The reason cyanide kills you is because it attacks the hemoglobin in your blood, actually binds to the iron in the hemoglobin. In ferrocyanide, it's already saturated with iron. It has as much iron as it can possibly hold, so it's safe. In fact, ferrocyanide is approved as a food additive. It's used as an anti-caking agent in food. And as long as it keeps all its iron, then you can actually eat it. You probably have eaten it if you've uh, eaten enough different foods that needed anti-caking. turns out ferrocyanide is really very cheap it was a major chemical in the development of photographic prints but over the past 20 years digital photography has killed that so presumably there's uh, a bunch of ferrocyanide factories that have been idled just waiting to start up again in order to make flow battery materials that's just that's wild speculation i haven't actually <laughs> looked into the the factory situation.
0: We have a bunch of car factories in Australia just waiting to make electric cars too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, okay. Soon enough, soon enough. Uh, What other advantages have you gained by using the new alkaline solution with the two organic um, molecules?
1: Well, there's a lot of excitement about using lithium batteries for stationary storage. And lithium has done terrifically well for electronics, and now it's Uh, Allowing us to make electric cars, which is great, but for stationary storage, you have to worry about fire danger. These, These batteries have taken down airplanes. They continue to be a fire risk. Anytime you store large amounts of energy in one place, you have to worry about accidental sudden release of that energy. In our flow battery, we dissolve our molecules in water so they can't catch on fire. So we have something that is inherently fireproof. And we think that's a big advantage over lithium batteries. Another advantage is that the projected cost, and there's a group of researchers that have projected costs in mass production scale, and we're not associated with them, but they published a paper saying we have a fighting chance of our batteries coming in at a third of the cost of lithium batteries once they're in mass production. So those are two very big advantages. The disadvantage is our solutions are heavy and they're bulky. So you're not gonna be putting them in cars. They don't have a high enough energy density to be good in cars. They're fine from stationary storage where size and weight don't matter nearly as much as cost and safety.
0: Okay, so the, that's um, the the domestic situation, the, the microgrid backup, and hopefully at, at um, grid scale for major backup of uh, wind and solar farms, um, equalizing the, the power flow there, or at the end of a long run, and so on. These are all ideal right. applications.
1: Yeah. Yes, I, at, at grid scale, utility scale, it, it could be that the Acid battery with the bromine is the winner because the performance is best, and there are trained professionals to manage the grid with those batteries. For microgrids, there may not be trained professionals. There, you might want the alkaline battery, give up a little bit of performance in order to have the safety and the the absence of professionals. For home and commercial use, you'd certainly not want the acid battery. You'd want the alkaline battery.
0: I should just step back briefly because I, I perhaps um, confuse the issue by leading us into your second development without introducing it properly. So your paper of 2014 invented effectively the flow battery with organics at one electrode, but it was relying on the bromine for the other electrode. And your big advance that you're just telling us about now is that you've now managed to do uh, a much safer alternative for the other electrode too, which really opens up the scope for a very safe Organic flow battery, but you've got the challenge of of bringing its efficiency up at the moment. You said I think you're around the 50% efficiency compared to the vanadium and your it's, previous
1: battery. The the efficiency is a an elusive term in these batteries. It turns out because the efficient you can get almost any efficiency you want depending on how hard you run them. So if you really want to compare two different flow batteries at early research stage, the best number to use is the power density, the Mm -hmm. peak, the the most power you can get out of a cell per unit area of cell. And so that's the number that I am using to compare our cells right now. And the alkaline chemistry has about two thirds of the power density of the acid chemistry Mm. as, as of now. And that they, I expect them both to go up, they're both in the same ballpark as vanadium already, and we're starting engineering efforts to optimize the cells to bring it up even further. It's important because if you double the power density, then that means you can cut the amount of stuff you have in your cell by a factor of two and still get the same power out. Mm. So that brings your costs down.
2: We'll lead into the practical application now. You've, you've just run us through what the next step for your team is. Is there any other... Key notes that you wanted to make on the actual elements of the battery and where your team's at before we move on to practical application?
1: There have been a lot of different chemistries in research and development for flow batteries. What I think we have now is the first high-performance, non-flammable, non-toxic, non-corrosive and low-cost chemicals for flow batteries. All of the others seem to get tripped
2: up on one of those figures of merit. Okay. And... uh, Have you seen your battery implemented on a commercial or residential scale yet?
1: No, it's still just a baby in my lab. Okay. And Uh, we keep things small in order to be able to try things and fail and redesign and rebuild and retry again rapidly. So the building is a very quick process. So we keep things small. We do have the small company collaborator, which a year and a half from now is scheduled to have a prototype at the three kilowatt scale. That should be sort of the single family home scale.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, that may be the first prototype that comes up. The Italian startup company is just getting started now and their mission is to uh, do utility scale storage. And their, their timetable isn't known yet, but that could, that could come out quicker or it could come out slower.
2: Okay. And when your prototype does get up and running, or if or when, uh, what kind of practical application advantages um, will you see provided in comparison to something like Tesla's Powerwall battery system or other storage batteries?
1: So the Powerwall is available now, and it looks interesting. It's gotten people excited. You do need to worry about what your home insurance rates are going to do if you put lithium batteries of that size into your house and you have to be able to afford the cost of the batteries there are some people who will do that anyway and they will lead the charge when our batteries are ready they will be fireproof and the potential cost will be something like a third of the cost of the power wall for the same energy but there they're way ahead of us now. So it's it's mm. unfair to compare. It's easy for someone to say my cost will be lower. It's quite another thing to say my cost is lower. Mm-hmm. And we're, <laughs> we're working on getting to that point.
2: Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Michael Aziz. That's all we have time for.
1: It's been my pleasure
2: talking to you. You've been listening to another Beyond Zero interview. Today, with Professor Michael Aziz, about the latest development in the organic flow battery, uh, which is getting us one step closer to solving renewable energy's problem of intermittency and inability to produce power when the sun isn't shining and the wind is still. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank Beyond Zero Emissions and recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. If you want to listen to our show or any of our other shows, um, you can do so at bz.org or you can follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Thank you, Kay and Mike.
0: Thanks, Laura.
1: Thanks, Laura. Or, okay?
2: You've been listening to a
0: 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR
2: in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.